The Toby Gribbon Show. Highlights. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Edwina Curry is a writer, broadcaster and former politician serving as the Conservative MP for South Derbyshire from 1983 to 1997 and a Junior Health Minister for two years in the 80s. And she's with us here just now. How are you today? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. It's a cold, miserable down day. I live <laughs> yeah. in the Peak District. It's often a bit like this. Yeah, but we got a great result in Eurovision on Saturday night, didn't we? We did. Um, I stayed up to watch it with some Ukrainian friends and um, I think they're still feeling a bit poorly this morning. (laughs) Well, what got you interested in politics in the first place? Uh, When you have to go back more than half a century. (laughs) I'm about of an age, I think, to be your grandma or great grandma. Mm. And uh, I was born in Liverpool uh, just after the Second World War, a city that had been flattened by the bombs. When I see what's been happening in Ukraine, that brings back a lot of you know, flashbacks from, from childhood. I was born after the end of the war. Yeah. But still, it was, it, it, you know, people were badly traumatised and it was, it was a grim place to be in many ways. Mm. And uh, as I'm growing up, I'm thinking, right, do I want to stay here or, you know, do, am I more ambitious than that? Mm. And uh, how do I do that? And in a way, what you're looking at, even as a teenager, is you're aware that governments and government decisions benevolent or malevolent affect the lives of ordinary people and if you want your life to be better and those near you and around you then you know maybe you should find out how the system works uh which i i I did in particular once i was at university and i was able to do politics and economics and so on and um, actually i can remember in 1968 when the russians invaded czechoslovakia Mm. very similar sorts of circumstances Uh, during the summer holidays, during the August of 1968, when we got back there to college in the uh, in the September October, I was saying, "Oh, if that was me, I'd have been greeting them with an anti-tank weapon or something." Mm. And somebody said, "No, no, no! You should be the kind of person to make sure the anti-tank weapons are there. Yeah. You should be in politics." And uh, that's where the the idea was born. All right, maybe mm. maybe I might be good at this. Yeah. It was a, a weird thing to want in those mm. days, Toby, because there were virtually no women in the House of Commons. Mm. 
And even when I got there in 1983, I was one of only 23. But, you know, change was in the air because one of the 23 was prime minister. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, we felt that anything was possible by then. Yeah. And was that perhaps the first big political issue that got you interested? Or was there maybe one closer to home, first of all? Well, there were more serious and darker things. My family are Orthodox Jewish and, um, you know, relatives and people that we knew and relatives of people we knew had perished in the Holocaust. Mm. It wasn't talked about much then. But I think there was also a consciousness that the Hitler regime had been elected. They were actually elected in a Mm. democratic society in 1932. And it follows that actually politics isn't always just about being nice. You've also got to be canny. You've got to figure out how to do things. He was elected on a minority vote because the the people who didn't get elected fell out with each other. Mm. Uh, The politics of this country is uh, looks a lot simpler. Uh, First past the post is something I strongly support. It has the effect of making you resolve your difficulties Mm. before you go for election. So you have a lot of argument and debate uh, behind the scenes, sometimes in public, which is what's (laughs) happening now. Um, But it, it, it obliges people whose basic principles are similar, but whose ideas of how to actually achieve something may be different to sit down and argue it through. In other words, to find a a compromise or to figure out a timetable. That's actually very good indeed for the way that a country uh, may be run most of the time. Yeah. And before becoming an MP, you were a councillor for many years, right? I was. um, Well, life took um, me and my um, husband, gosh, a very long time ago, in the (laughs) early 1970s, to the city of Birmingham. Mm. Uh, We had been working for Arthur Anderson in London and realised that if I wanted to get to Parliament, in London there were relatively few constituencies and lots, hundreds, thousands of good candidates after them. Once you got away from there and you went into the provinces, then the situation was reversed, that there were lots of good Mm. constituencies, but on the whole people were not putting themselves forward or they wanted to stay local, they didn't want to go to Westminster. So I said to Ray, uh, you know, why don't we see if Arthur Anderson could send us to one of their new offices that they were building in different places. And I thought it might be somewhere like Bristol or Nottingham. <laughs> and he came back and he said, we're going to Birmingham. <laughs> Birmingham? Oh, my God, another industrial city. I, I come from Liverpool. I don't want to go to Birmingham. <laughs> and he said rather forlornly, well, I've said yes now. We'd only been married a year. So off we went to Brum, and it turned out to be superb. Mm. Uh, a great city with a strong tradition of local government, a big place, a million people, unitary authority responsible for all its own services and with the resources and the determination to do things well. Yeah. And in no time at all, with baby number one tucked on one, under one arm, I'm on the council. Yeah. I looked around and I thought, God, you know, what's going to fit with kids? And the answer was social service. Services. Bring me the child minder register. And it was years out of date. I'm going to do something about it. Yes, Councillor Mrs. Curry. Um, <laughs> so you begin to discover how to get things done. Mm-hmm. And it's an, an invaluable lesson in the political world. It's not just about posturing and virtue signaling, mm. that um, if you have a particular interest, you pursue it, you find out more about it, you figure out how the systems work, who's responsible. A child-minding case in point. I was a young mother with a baby. In those days, nurseries didn't take children under three. 
if you wanted your child looked after, it was a private arrangement. There was a rudimentary register for um, listing people. Uh, no D DBS checks or anything like that, but it was pretty rudimentary. Uh, it hadn't been updated for years. So we got a, an officer on it. They started to do visits to the people who wanted to do it. It helped, it helped young mothers who wanted to earn a bit of pin money, yeah. check the safety of the house, that kind of thing. And uh, then when I got into a position of more responsibility, I said, look, they're a wonderful resource. They are carers who want to care yeah. and they're not costing us anything. Let's do some training. Let's get them together. So once a week, that's what we started to do. We trained them to look for or things like uh, malnutrition in the children or symptoms of child abuse, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's something that you could extend to carers of old people. We started doing a night watch system in which we would uh, pay staff to uh, go and sit with somebody who was old or sick or perhaps a disabled person during the night didn't cost very much but again you're looking for you're looking for signs of failure that you can help but you're also giving support and advice you're creating networks that didn't exist before all quite low key but you think to yourself, hey, this is all right. You don't need an army of people to do it. You need yeah. the will and a bit of imagination. And I was on Birmingham City Council in all for, um, let me think, I was on for 11 years. Wow. But once I got elected to Parliament, all I could do was just sort of turn up and, and wave. There's a story actually connected with that. And it goes back into British political history. Mm -hmm. Because once I got elected to Parliament, I said to the Conservative leader of the council, um, who modelled himself somewhat on Churchill. Yeah. And I said, can I resign? And he said, no, you will cause a pilot. <laughs> and so I said, like... well, you know, so what, basically? And he said, no, we would lose it. <laughs> and I said, uh, right, okay. But, you know, it, it's still, it's not right for me not to be able to attend. And he said, I, I said, what, what do the Labour Party think about all this? And he said, Labour Party wish you to stay as well. And said, really? <laughs> Why? And he said, because we would lose it to the S. DP, and they don't want that either. Oh, blimey. So I had to stay for three solid years, arrive about once every five or six months, go to a council meeting, sign in, wave, say hello to the Labour leader of the council by then, yeah. and skedaddle back to Westminster. Wow. <laughs> oh, dear. And they saw off the SDP. I don't think they ever really sort of reared their ugly heads in Birmingham. <laughs> when you were an MP, you were a junior health minister from 86 to 88. What things would you say you're the most proud of during that time? Well, I was the most junior of junior ministers. Mm. And there was a lot of misogyny around. And mm -hmm. um, a lot of people sort of trying to push you down, you know? Yeah. So you're given a brief that's got nothing very significant on it. Mm. And you look at the list of responsibilities. You're not responsible for running the health service. You're not responsible for negotiating wages of 1.3 million staff who work in the health service or anything important. Yeah. And it's DHSS, which means by far the biggest part of the budget is social security benefits and all the issues that come from that. Yeah. And right down at the bottom of my little list of obligations was um, the prevention of ill health and promotion of good health. Mm. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm up for that. Do I have a budget? No, I don't have a budget. <laughs> right. You're going to have to do this yourself. Um, within months, I was the best known MP in the ministry. <laughs> that because we got cracking. We did, um, anti-smoking campaigns yeah. we did eating well i met the supermarkets you know i just filmed going around tesco uh, 
potatoes and where's the skim milk? You know, yeah. where's the low fat options? Um, and they were all very embarrassed. Within within months, we had a, a whole changes and widening of all the ranges of what was available, um, which thrilled me because I was I've had a long problem with uh, keeping my weight down. So the mm. It was entirely selfish, all this stuff. You know. <laughs> and then I convened a series of seminars because we were kind of working in the dark. Yeah. And my economics and my maths told me that actually you need some evidence, right? Mm. So I convened a series of seminars with some very distinguished epidemiologists with surnames like Pito. And I said, what do people die of in this country? What do people suffer from in this country? What of these things is preventable? Well, mm. lung cancer and smoking is an obvious one. Yeah. What is probably not preventable, but if we treat it early enough, we catch it early enough, we can save lives. And how do we do that? And they, and I'm particularly interested in women's health because nobody is, I'm a woman and nobody else has looked at it ever. Mm. And they came up with breast cancer screening and cervical cancer screening. Breast mm. cancer screening being done nationwide in Sweden and cervical cancer screening, which is a little trickier, Toby. I'm sure you understand because nobody talked about their bits in those days. Yes. Your generation are much more open, which is really healthy. Um, a cervical cancer screen was being done in Finland. So I mm. uh, packed them into a shower bank and off we went. We went and had a look at all of this. And um, when I came back, we realised that we could do this. Mm. We the, the cost-benefit analysis was such that if we could save women's lives quite early on, their contributions to society, the taxes they would pay and, and so mm. on, would more than pay for the cost of the services, provided we mm. get them to use them. And um, there, are, there are two things I'm proud of. The first is when the, the officials set it all out and they said to me, well, which one do you want to do, breast cancer screening or cervical cancer screening? And the thing I'm proud of is I said, well, why can't we do both? Yeah. And we did become the first country in the world to do nationwide breast and cervical cancer screening for our women, yeah. which has saved thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. It's been refined over the years. It's yeah. got better as we've done more work. Uh, but that's one thing. The other thing was to get the money, somebody had to go and see Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. And it was my job. You oh. do it, you do it. <laughs> so I went in and I was fully briefed and she hated it if you were shuffling around papers. You had yeah. to answer her straight. And um, I spent half an hour with her. And she was of the age that we were targeting for breast cancer screening. Yeah. Uh, so she understood. She, she got a scientific background and um, yeah, fired lots of questions at me and, and didn't give any decisions. I came out after half an hour and sort of leaned against the door. And one of my officials said, um, are you all right, minister? And I said, yes, 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 I'm fine. But now I know what an Egyptian mummy felt like as they drew its brain out through its nostrils with pincers. <laughs> but she said, yes, she said, yes. Wow. Um, so that's some of the stuff. Had I stayed in office long enough, we were going to start our men's bits. Yeah. I was going to have a look at testicular cancer. Um, yes, that would have caused quite a ruck, ruckus at the time. <laughs> being done now, it's being done now. And as well, of course, there was the whole salmonella and eggs thing. How bad could that epidemic have been? We already had an epidemic on our hands with AIDS, mm. HIV. If you haven't seen the TV series, It's a Sin, mm. that's what it was like. I watched wow. that series uh, with 
tears streaming down my face. That's how it was. The stigma against people with AIDS, HIV, against the gay community was awful. Homophobia was regarded as not just respectable, but necessary. It was just mm. awful. So to have a government campaign that tackled um, the, the, the spread of an epidemic amongst mm. that group of people, which, of course, was spilling over uh, through blood transfusions into just about every, anybody would be at risk. Mm. Um, that was that was a, a, a superb lesson in the importance of public health, the importance yeah. of governments putting their minds to it in a rational and uh, non-discriminatory fashion. Now, when it came, it also meant that the scientific community knew that I was on top of the science and I was interested because I'd originally gone to university to do uh, chemistry. I got a scholarship to do natural sciences. Um, the Public Health Laboratory Service during 1988 started to ring alarm bells saying, we're getting an awful lot of samples of people seriously ill with food poisoning, so ill that they're in hospital for six weeks or more on kidney dialysis, and samples are being taken and sent to us, and it's coming up with a new kind of salmonella. Mm. And it's being traced to eggs. And the problem is they don't smell off or anything like that. It's in the eggs. It's um, it's spreading. It seems to have got into the oviducts of the chickens. Yeah. The chickens are not ill either, mm. not at the age where they're laying. Yeah. Uh, we have a problem. We have a, we have a public health problem. And by the time we uh, start to get on top of it, we've got 500 reported cases a week, which is a lot, 30,000 cases a year. And that's tip of iceberg. There's almost certainly many uh, thousands or hundreds of thousands more cases than that. Um, and it's a killer. Yeah. It, uh, in vulnerable people, it was a killer. And um, yeah, so we started to see what could be done. We were not the Ministry of Food. Food mm. was the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. And to my horror, they kept saying, there isn't a problem. Mm. Oh, there is a problem. How can you say that? <laughs> there isn't a problem. Oh, my God. Um, so we put out um, uh, announcements to hospitals, to care homes, anything that was within our purview saying, don't use shell eggs, use pasteurized egg. We found there was hardly any pasteurized egg. You had to kick everybody into making pasteurized egg, which you couldn't and now still get, um, and uh, cook the egg properly and all that kind of thing. And it kind of escalated to a, a crescendo with hundreds and hundreds of people every week saying, why doesn't the government do something about this? You know, we are not in a position to identify the risk. And um, I was being told, don't say a word. What? <laughs> what? Why not? Well, the farmers don't like it. Pardon me. Mm. You know, I have a farming constituency, but my farmers wouldn't accept any um, omerta like that. Mm. This is ridiculous. And so eventually I thought, look, I'm sick and tired of this. I, I, I got the breast cancer campaign underway. I got the uh, cervical cancer was fine. We brought in the MMR vaccine. The uh, HIV program was underway. I thought I'd sub this. I could do other things for a living, yeah. you know. Um, so I told everybody hmm. and um, the eggs hit the fan. <laughs> and what disgusted me was that the level of denial continued for months until there was uh, not a public inquiry, a parliamentary inquiry, at which point everyone admitted that they'd been, feed they'd been feeding the chickens protein mm. to improve their laying. And uh, chickens are herbivores. Yeah. They had been feeding them, Toby, ground up dead chicken. <laughs> uh, uh. And um, also uh, fish meal. Mm. 
which came from uh, ground up dead things found in inland waters, the mm-hmm. shells of uh, uh, of um, mollusks and shrimps and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What do we have in inland waters? <laughs> Sewage. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, oh, anyway, we sorted out the eggs. I left, but math continued for a number of years. Right, math continued to do stupid things. BSC came up mm. as a direct result of something very similar: yeah. feeding herbivores, cows, ground-up protein from infected dead stock, and then we have sort of mouth disease twice. Mm. At which point, Tony Blair, who was the prime minister, closed down math, yeah. and we should we should have done that years before. He yeah. turned he created. Defra, uh, which has had a much more, I think, a much more positive outcome. Yeah. There you go. That's a long story, but that's <laughs> yeah. the answer to it. And that's certainly a lot of achievements in two years as a junior health minister. Would you say that's more than the average health minister? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what, ha- what helped was I had chaired a health authority in Birmingham. I mm. actually served on the health authority for uh, seven years, and it was wow. a big authority. It was a big central Birmingham teaching. So we had 10 teaching hospitals and I rubbed shoulders with professors and um, senior consultants, served on a lot of uh, selection committees for their colleagues because they always had to have somebody who was not a doctor and got to know them all really well. And, you know, after the selection committee, we go and have lunch and I would say to them, tell me what's going on. What's what's the big stuff in your department? Is there anything we can help with? I also chaired social services and I chaired housing. I'm very good indeed at sitting there at the top telling other people what to do. Yeah. So that was a good background to have. Yeah. Being a health minister and, you know, having your constituency as well, did you ever have to prioritise one over the other or did you still manage to find time? It depended a bit what was going on. Um, the Representing a constituency, particularly one like mine, where we've got good communications and, and terrific people. We'd, we'd yeah. gone through the miners' strike in 1984, almost as soon as I was elected, uh, to my surprise and naturally secret delight. The miners took a vote and voted to stay at work. And they were part of the foundation of the uh, Union of Democratic Mine Workers, um, which, which you know, surprised me a bit. But basically, the, we were on the... We were heading in the same direction. They wanted uh, to get a, a different life. That you know, my dad was a miner, my granddad was a miner, but I'd like my son and daughter to do something different. Yeah. Uh, so, in fact, that was Toyota, which yeah. happened almost immediately after I'd left office. So I went from being involved with eggs to being involved with cars you know, <laughs> to learning exercise all the time. Yeah. Uh, but much of the time, as a minister, what you could do is kind of test out what you're trying to do at meetings with constituents. So, for example, we're working on cervical cancer. I go to a meeting of the Mother's Union in my patch, yeah. and I say, how do we sell this? How do we do this? What, what works? What doesn't work? You know, there were no such things as focus groups in those days, but that's yeah. what it became. And it was the same with um, as votes came up on abortion uh, hum- and the human embryology, that kind of thing. You'd say to people, do we want to tighten the law on abortion? Is it about right? Or do you think we should make it a little easier? They were very liberal minded, uh, particularly the women I was talking to. And then I would I'd say what I what I really why? Why? Tell me. Tell me. And they'd say something like, could be my granddaughter. Mm. I wouldn't want her life ruined by one mistake. Oh, 
goodness. And I would pick up that the underlying philosophy of many uh, ordinary people in this country is quite liberal-minded, it's kind, it's tolerant. Um, if people express a fear, it's a genuine one. There's something behind it. Mm. Let me give you a more modern example, coming, say, to the, uh, the, the 2010 election, when Gordon Brown is the prime minister, and he's a decent bloke, and he is tackled by a woman who's on her way to post her postal vote for him. Oh, yeah. And she wants, she says, what are we going to do about immigrants? And he is quite dismissive and he gets in the car, he's still mic'd up yeah. and he talks about her being a bigoted woman. Oh, wow. It's one of the reasons that he lost the election. Mm -hmm. OK. And it's one of the reasons it's still an issue now. Right. I'm the grandchild of immigrants. Right. I know how much immigrants contribute, so I'm not fearful. But what you have to think of is what's behind that fear? Mm. And Toby, it's fine for people like me. I've got two university degrees. Nobody is going to come in from another country and replace me. Yeah. But so many of my constituents or the red wall seats, the old red wall seats, they're not people with a university education. They have basic skills. And the people who have arrived in recent years have replaced them in their jobs, often at lower wages. They are a threat a big threat and a government that seemed to welcome unlimited migration into the country was going to be a government that eventually got voted out. Mm. That's mm. how that worked. Yeah. That's how it worked. Now, Boris, you can think of all the good and bad words about him, but he has a nose for those sorts of issues. Mm. Of course, as well, you mentioned the whole homophobia earlier, but you actually tabled a motion to lower the age of consent for male homosexuals. You didn't quite get it to the exact same age, but you got it lower, didn't you? Oh, we had a very exciting time. Um, <laughs> It had the the um, gay rights at that level, age of consent, which mm. it, to me was an absolutely fundamental right. I'm a Tory. I like small government. I believe that we should um, we should have as little legislation as possible telling us what to do. I hate being told what to do. <laughs> I'm not really a libertarian, but uh, I couldn't have been a health minister if I was libertarian. But yeah. um, I'm sympathetic to the idea that most of the time, live your life as you wish, as long as you don't hurt other people, as long as you're rights don't infringe on the rights of other people as far as possible and who you sleep with is your business all right that mm. we protect children uh, we protect the vulnerable but apart from that there should be equality in the way that the law applies to personal relationships and there wasn't it was highly mm. discriminatory uh, not for uh, gay women. And that's because when the law was made back in Victorian times, Queen Victoria didn't believe that women could possibly, possibly love each other and <laughs> do anything naughty. Okay. And so the law never, never mentioned gay women, but it mentioned homosexuals as gay men. And um, what had happened was there was an election in 1982. I had turned down the possibility of going back into government. I did not want to be police and prison minister. Yeah. I was not going to play to my <laughs> no way. And um, it's kind of casting around for what to do next. I went to a meeting of the Tory campaign for homosexual equality, TORSH, mm. at which they were talking about trying to reverse Section 28, the clause which banned the teach any teaching about homosexuality in schools. 
And I sat there thinking, this is an old battle mm. and it's, it's a trivial one. It's what it represents that matters. And what we should do is go for something much more wholehearted. We should go for the age of consent. Mm. And they looked around and said, would you help? I said, sure. Um, and they all kind of scuttled for cover and said, would you propose the amendment? And somebody said to me, it'd be good if you did, because you're a woman and you've got two daughters. So nobody can point the finger at you and say, you know, oh, you know, what do you get up to on the, in, <laughs> on the back rooms? Well, okay, I had nothing to lose. And between uh, you, me and the gatepost, Toby, I thought, yeah, that'll be a little bit of um, payback for all the snide remarks from the gammons on the back seat, the back of <laughs> yeah. you know, good. Um, but I said, look, it's got to be all party. This has got to be the House of Commons at its best. It has to be a free vote. And I need the Labour Party and the Lib Dems to back it. There were hardly any Scott snacks there. And they said, OK, who do you want from the Labour Party? So I said, I want Neil Kinnock. Mm. And they said, he recently retired as, as Labour leader. And they said, he won't do it. Why won't he do it? He's a Welshman. He comes from the valleys and he's got two sons. I said, that's exactly why he should do it. And they said, well, you can't persuade him. So Neil and I went went to a, a hotel. We didn't do this in the House of Commons. Everyone would have been gossiping. We went to St. Ermin's Hotel at the back of St. James's Park Station, and we ate rock cakes in a corner of the lounge. And I lectured Neil Kinnock on equality. And I said, do you believe in equality? You should do this. And bless him, he did. He did. And he was excellent, excellent. And um, in that debate, which was February of 94, the young shadow home secretary spoke, the Labour shadow home secretary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Secretary and gave a humdinger of a speech. Mm. And his name was Tony Blair. Yeah. The leader of the Labour Party at that time was John Smith. And I, I nudged somebody and I actually wrote in my diary, that young man would be prime minister someday. Yeah. But the great thing about the age of consent thing was, as with anything countercultural, you have to think hard how to convince a lot of people. Yeah. Research showed that people would be hostile to homosexuality unless they knew somebody. Mm. So the message went out to every gay in the country and their families. I said to them, get your mothers involved. If your mother goes and tackles the neighbours and they all go and see their MP, we'll get that MP's vote. Mm. And throughout the nation, a host of young men came out to their mothers who then said, I always knew. <laughs> Why are you telling me now? Because I want you to go and see the MP and tell them to vote for a Dwinger's Amendment. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. And it was, it was the first time in 25 years, a quarter century, that such a debate had been held. Yeah. Um, the way it works is that we proposed equality first, which was 16. Mm. We nearly got there, nearly. But we got 18. Yeah. And we knew then it was a matter of when, not if, equality would come. And once you start those dominoes falling, you will end up with uh, equal marriage, equal adoption rights, a whole host of other things. It takes time, mm. but those things did happen. Yeah. But then only a few years later, in 1997, a memorable election, you lost your seat. Did that surprise you or were you sort of expecting it? Well, given that I'd spotted Tony Blair... <laughs> And by then, in my patch, coal mining was a, a historical event. Mm. It's celebrated in museums. People were working in Toyota. They were settled in really good jobs. They owned their homes. They had little businesses. Mm. They were um, they were more prosperous and more secure. Uh, and Margaret Thatcher was a distant memory. Yeah. And uh, Tony Blair absolutely swept the board. I mean, credit to him. He did it um, exactly in the right way. He listened to what people wanted. Um, he made all the right speeches. Didn't deliver on most of them. <laughs> I mean, for example, he promised gay rights. Elected in 97, he needed a hell of a nudge to actually bring uh, equal rights in in 1999. He could have done it in the first parliament and he didn't. Mm. So he needed a bit of a nudge. And then he got broiled in Iraq and all that kind of rubbish. Yeah. Um, I went off and uh, I went to work for the BBC and I presented a weekend programme in uh, in BBC Radio 5 Live, which was yeah. fairly new. I was one <laughs> of the first people. It had dawned on them when they set it all up. And they were all blokes and they needed yeah. some women. So I was one of the first women presented. <laughs> well, and how did broadcasting compare to being a politician? Because I think you've said before that you can be a little bit freer with what you say. But then again, if you're on the BBC, do you still have to maybe censor yourself a bit? If you're, if you're wise, whatever you do and say in public, you're thinking ahead. Hmm. You're thinking what effect what I'm going to say will have. You're not thinking about it for yourself. It, it, it's not really about you. It's about the words that you're putting out, the viewpoint you're putting out. Uh, what effect is it going to have on the people who hear this? Yeah. If you don't want to offend anybody, don't do it. All right. It's equivalent to Twitter, which didn't yeah. exist. Um, if you don't want to offend people, but you want to convince them, then you need to be very good with words. Yeah. And it, it's soundbite territory, a lot of it. It's something that you learn. And sometimes you have to learn it the hard way. Um, I can, I'll give you an example. 
example of something which I, I thought about and then defended quite vigorously. And I could see how it would upset people. Um, when we were watching the uh, Olympics and the, in 2012 and the, um, the parade and so on, the Italians came in and we watched the Paralympics. Yeah. And the Italians came in and they all had zoot suits and they all had the same wig and they all looked so cute. Whether they were in wheelchairs or not, they looked mm. really fabulous. They obviously thought about how to look like Italians <laughs> or a stereotype of Italian. Yeah. And I tweeted that I thought they all looked absolutely fabulous, uh, including those in wheelchairs. I got a lot of stick for that. Mm. And I was invited on breakfast TV and I said, well, actually, what I said was true, and I was paying them a huge compliment, and I wasn't dissing people in wheelchairs. On the contrary, mm. uh, they had clearly decided to collude as sports people in a big joke. Yeah. And if you say, oh, you can't say anything rude about people in wheelchairs, pardon me, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that sometimes you think hard about, sometimes you say things slightly off the top of your head, inevitably, because yeah. you're a human being. And then when you think about it, you may wish to correct it or adjust it or explore it a bit further. Sometimes you're just content that the issue is being debated. Yeah. Now, unscrupulous politicians use this all the time. Brexit debate, £350 million going to Europe that could be going to the NHS. Mm. What did the opponents of that say? They would endlessly talk about how much money was going to Brussels. It didn't matter how much money was going to Brussels. The issue was that money was going to Brussels that could be used for something else. Do you see? Yeah. So it's very clever to raise the issue in a way that has opponents going, oh, you got that wrong. Yeah. And as well as broadcasting and politics, you've done writing as well, fiction, and of course, your diaries. What made you want to release books? Um, I'd always written my own speeches, even back in Birmingham days. I used yeah. to write regularly. I put articles in the Birmingham Mail, usually trying to explain what we were up to as part of this free publicity machine, <laughs> right? Never yeah. had a book or advertising or anything. Um and that meant that I liked writing. I always enjoyed writing. And I started keeping a diary, a private diary, in August of 1987. Once we had won that election, which was the third one in a row, which was unprecedented, mm. I think we all realised that what Margaret Thatcher was up to was astonishing. Yeah. Astonishing. She really was changing the country, changing the way that the, the, the nation was thinking about um, supply, about the role of the unions, a whole host of things. And she was winning with huge majorities mm. okay and there was i with a ringside seat so i started keeping a diary and inevitably a diary becomes a kind of false friend yeah. you tell the diary things you wouldn't tell anybody else like that person was horrible to me or <laughs> whatever you almost never put anything positive in it because if yeah. someone's nice to you why would you write it down yeah. why would you be uh, aggrieved about it in dead of night after a couple of glasses of wine you write down the, the negatives um, and it was never intended for publication. Mm. I thought at some point I would write a memoir or mm. an appreciation of um, Margaret Stay from having had uh, a ringside seat. Yeah. Um, when I left office in 88, I was approached by a publisher who said, you know, you've, you've been partaking in a lot of interesting stuff in the last couple of years. Do you want to write about it? Sure. OK. And I had access to all the ministerial papers. So I wrote a yeah. book. I've actually still got a copy of it here called Lifelines. Yeah. It's stuffed with bits of paper cut from newspapers over the years saying, 
Edwina was right, but there you go. <laughs> um, so I wrote this book called Lifelines, and I'm really pleased now that I did because mm. it's a record of what we got up to. And it sold well, and I made some money. And they came back and said, okay, keep going. Um, basically learn to write. And then in 92, after this election, while on the one hand I'm in meetings talking about homosexual equality, mm. On the other hand, I'm sitting at lunch in the Savoy with a publisher saying, you're ready to write a novel. <laughs> and I said, well, what would I write about? And he said, oh, you keep us entertained with the stories of what the lads get up to mm. when the whips think they're in the constituency and the wives think they're at Westminster. Uh. And I bristled and said, you know, some of us don't have wives, some of us have husbands. And they said, that's the novel. That's the novel. Now go away and write a couple of chapters and see how you get on. So I came back with five short chapters. I got five characters who I called A, B, C, D, and E. Mm. And I wrote um, a short chapter about a crisis in their lives, which would form part of a plot. Mm. And uh, uh, one was a gay minister who's been misbehaving in Amsterdam, <laughs> comes back to find that the person that he's misbehaved in Amsterdam with is waiting to see him in the lobby of the Ooh. House of Commons. That was based on Jeremy Thorpe and Norman yeah. Scott. Uh, one is a woman MP who comes home early to find her husband in bed with a neighbour. Yeah. That was based on one of my women colleagues. Wow. Um, and there were two or three other scenes like this. Yeah. And I'm writing them and I think, well, I'm rather enjoying writing about sex. This is fun. Um, so I presented about 30,000 words in these five short chapters as character um, character portrayals. Mm. And the agent's eyebrows went straight up and he came back and he said, oh, right, okay, I think I can sell this. <laughs> and a few weeks later, uh, I got a phone call in the House of Commons and the, the voice at the other end was was uh, Hillary, the agent, who said, uh, are you sitting down? And I said, why? He said, because I've sold it for you. Wow. And then he told me how much and it had <laughs> noughts on it. Yeah. And my salary at the time was £22,000. I said, great, what do I have to do now? He said, you have to bloody write it. <laughs> um, and... So I did. And in fact, it just kind of came out of me. We had a gay character. We had um, a, a, a black guy who wanted to be a candidate, who got beaten up, who was also based on somebody that I knew. I put all the prejudice and all the uh, all the back scenes in that I had witnessed. Um, oh, and I gave the leading lady a lover in the House of Commons. <laughs> and um, yeah. And it became a number one bestseller. Yeah. Paid for this house, I can tell you. <laughs> and in fact, I've written so much that we ended up with a second novel. Wow. Ended up doing six novels altogether. I was dead lucky, Toby. It was yeah. just before the internet. Oh, they yeah. had to be real books, hardbacks, 20, 25 quid each. And they <laughs> sold like hotcakes. Wow. Yeah. I'm very, very lucky. And of politics, broadcasting and writing, which has been the hardest? Oh, now that's a strange question. Question, because each of them poses their own limitations and frustrations. Yeah. You can't achieve much through broadcasting. In broadcasting, you are just promoting freedom of speech and expression. Mm. Uh, it's well paid, but it is risky. And you run the risk of getting the boot if you do or say something wrong. 
Uh, I never did. I mean, I have stopped doing a lot of it recently because I'm just at the age of 75. I'm too busy doing other things. But there you go. Um, when it comes to writing, especially if you're writing fiction, you can get things off your chest. You can tell the truth in fiction, uh, which you can't do when you're uh, writing maybe a, a serious memoir or something like that. And the lawyers will get at it and take stuff out. Um, when you're in politics, though, if you genuinely try, you can genuinely make a difference. Yeah. So that makes the frustrations uh, worth worth the effort. Yeah. Worth the effort. So it's a different way of answering your question, but that's mm. the way I would I would word it. That if you're looking at what's worthwhile, then serving the public as an elected official of some kind or other is really worth doing. Yeah. Now here we go with these probing questions. As a former health minister, how well do you think the government have done over the last? two years with COVID? Well, they started off badly, but then that's mm. true of an awful lot of governments. Yeah. They caught up very, very fast. Um, and with the funding that went to Oxford and AstraZeneca, we ended up with a world-beating vaccine. Absolutely mm. superb, you know, a lot cheaper than Pfizer and um, <laughs> just as effective and able to go to many other countries. Um, I think it's about 180 countries it's used in now where Pfizer is just too expensive to use. Um, so we, they did very well with that, with the, the with the vaccine development, the vaccine rollout. Mm. <sighs> Test and trace was always going to be hard. Yeah. Because the people who need to work, like delivery drivers, not going to get tested, you know. Mm. And the the the, uh, the head of steam that built up against lockdown and mass, I deplored. Um, you know, the argument now is we should have been more like Sweden and mm. let people do their own thing. But general health in Sweden is much much better than it is here. We have so many um, obese people, starting mm. with the prime minister, uh, who ended up in hospital desperately oh, yeah. ill. So. I think they got their heads around it and eventually got the backing of the public within weeks. Um, what happened with the care homes was a tragedy. It happened in many other countries as well uh, because old nobody realised how vicious this respiratory disease was against old people and especially those with underlying health reasons, which is why they have been in hospital in the first place. And the care sector has been woefully um, under-supported. It's not just underfunding, under-supported in so many ways. And those weaknesses then um, come home to haunt us. But more recently, I think with uh, coming out of lockdown quickly and saying to people, look, just use your common sense. Mm. I think that's been very, very successful. There has been a wave of COVID infection, but it's not been serious. Most people have had it. I haven't, as far as I know. Vaccinations rates continue to be very high. And I think we all know that if we have to, if there's a new wave, we'll just get another jab. I've got four. Ooh. You know, yeah. Um, I think recently they've done it pretty well. And it's now time for us all to move on from this appalling episode, dreadful tragedy affecting the world uh, and its citizens. And so-called Partygate, does that issue bother you at all? Well, they should not have been having parties in Downing Street. And the senior civil servants there who were sending out some of those invitations should not be now employed uh, in, by the public purse, in my humble view. Mm. Um, that was wrong. That was just plain wrong. And it seems to have been happening all the time. Uh, it seems to have been part of a culture of, uh, you know, Downing Street, we work really hard. Whitehall, we work really hard. We work long hours and we'll make it a lovely place to work because we'll have uh, a few drinks afterwards. Mm. 
Personally, I do not think there's any place for alcohol in the office. You want a party? Go to the pub. Oh, the pub's shut. There's a reason the pub's shut. Go home. Go home. And that should have been the approach of the responsible adults who were there. Um, the prime minister, I think, got caught up in it inadvertently. Mm. I, I don't think he was the leader of it. I think the accusations that he was the, the instigator, I think, are nonsense. It's clear that some of these events um, happened and were organised by other people, including his wife, who should have known better. <laughs> but the emphasis on it from last November, I think it's been deeply unhelpful, mm. deeply unhelpful. And it will come back to bite Keir Starmer and mm. Angela Rayner. Um, and they always would have done. Somebody should have said to Keir, hang on a minute, before you start claiming the moral high ground, are we absolutely sure that we aren't vulnerable? Mm. Right? Because hypocrisy is a charge that can stick. And it, it, it round, round where I live, where, you know, quite a lot of people around here vote Labour, there were parties going on all over the place. Yeah. Often in people's back gardens, which would do no harm still. So I deplore that endless poking around. Mm. And certainly once the Ukrainian war started, uh, I think in the interests of freedom and democracy and the safety and security of Europe, the Labour Party should have abandoned it, stopped it stopped it. Um, I don't think it will do them any good in the long term. Yeah. And of course, Keir Starmer as well is facing his own accusations, as you touched on. What do you make of them? Do you have the same opinion or is it maybe, as you mentioned, the hypocrisy there that maybe bothers you? Well, I think the hypocrisy flows right through. Mm. I, I think it flows a lot through the Labour Party. Um, I, there's a reason I choose year by year to renew my membership of the of the Conservative Party. Uh, because for all its faults, I think it, um, it, it conservative governments have benefited this country hugely and Labour governments have not, mm. uh, with odd exceptions like bringing in the health service and so on. But then you're going back to when I was a baby. That's <laughs> a long, long time ago. Um, so it, there's an element of organised hypocrisy about, about Labour. And I was particularly upset and disturbed about the anti-Semitism that was allowed to flourish and was encouraged and, and condoned under its previous leadership, and which hasn't been completely eradicated yet. Um, Keir Starmer often says the right things, but politics is about getting things done. Yeah. And getting things done means getting rid of the candidates who were fermenting some of that. And he hasn't managed to do that yet. Even around here where I live, I won't say names, but they know who they are kind of thing. <laughs> Keir himself is not a politician. Mm. A politician is somebody who susses out the effect that they're having. He's a bought <laughs> He's a boring old fart. All right. I mean, you know, he's not going to go down well in the pubs of Preston. Not really. And his problem is that in Scotland, the SNP is still rampant. And he can't form a government without seats in Scotland. It's just, you know, it's too big a gap. Yeah. Uh, so he would need to be thinking very hard how to do that. So what do I think about him? I'm rather glad he's the Labour leader. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. And you have competed in many shows like Strictly and I'm a Celebrity. Is that fun stuff to do? Oh, yeah. I mean... It, it, you do these things for three reasons. Mm. Uh, firstly, it's actually fun to do. I yeah. mean, the first one I got involved in like that was Hell's Kitchen with Gordon Ramsay. And I'm still using some of the recipes. Um, and I hate cooking, you know, <laughs> but it, having learned how to do some of the uh, restaurant tricks and how to produce really lovely food um, from uh, good ingredients, I'm yeah. still keen to do all that. Um, and I, I'm being sworn up by Gordon Ramsay. I looked at him and I said, I've been sworn up by better men and women than you, you know. <laughs> so you do it because it's fun. Yeah. 
they're very well paid. Yeah. If they're not well paid, you don't do them. Um, I was asked not long ago to go and do the best Marigold Hotel in India in July Ooh. for peanuts. I wouldn't go to India in July for anything. No. But no, no, that's not going to happen. And the third thing is that it helps keep your profile high. Um, just occasionally that can be useful. That brings more work. That brings more requests to do things. Uh, and, and yeah, that's fine. That's why you've still heard of me. <laughs> the one I'm proudest of, the one I'm, well, the two I'm proud of. Uh, yeah. One was doing Celebrity Wife Swap Ooh. with John McCreary. That's been shown over and over and over again. Very strange man. And my husband <laughs> had to look after his wife, a very strange lady. Uh, um, yeah. And the other one is Celebrity Mastermind. Yeah. Well, you were the first woman to win that, weren't you? Well, roll of drums, please. Okay. Because I won it twice. Yeah. <laughs> I won it twice. Yeah. Um, at the time I won it twice, I was the only person to have won it twice. Yeah. But then um, somebody else won it twice. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm up there with the stars. And actually, there must be something in the water around here because Whaley Bridge is the home of uh, Alice Walker, who oh. won Mastermind uh, quite recently. So oh, yeah. Whaley Bridge is the home to two Masterminds. Yeah, that's incredible. And as well, what do you like to get up to in your spare time when you're not on the telly and writing and stuff? Well, I have two small dogs and yeah. uh, walking them is uh, good for me mentally and physically mm. i get out into the countryside and with dogs you have to go out in all weathers yeah. so it's it's a it's a good thing to do i've been out when it's snowing and raining like it was this morning uh, and you come back feeling refreshed you know, it's healthy for the heart and so on and I have lots of family. I went down to London uh, yesterday, which was a Sunday, to a birthday party for my 86-year-old cousin. Wow. My mother was one of eight who were wow. very close, eight siblings. And they had nine children between them. The youngest is 62. And the oldest <laughs> is 87. Wow. And had a party. And that was that was fun to do. Um, and other than that, I, I, I keep pretty busy. I, I got very much involved in all the Ukraine stuff. My grandmother came from Poltava. Hmm. So you, if you look at my Twitter feed, you would think I was a war correspondent. <laughs> retweet, retweet all the time. Um, I'm very much involved with uh, trying to help some refugees, that kind of thing. Yeah. Every day is busy. Yeah. And are there any plans for you to root back to politics? I did try uh, this time last year. Mm. Um, my husband, John, died of cancer in uh, November 2020. And um, then last year, we had delayed local elections with the county elections. Yeah. And um, there was a possibility of fighting the seat where I actually live. Wow. And uh, so I had a crack at it. I pushed the vote up from 1,048 to 1,878. Wow. <laughs> and that should have been enough. <laughs> but it was. The Labour Party brought in people from Manchester and Salford, and they fought it like a general election. The mm. turnout was 55%, which is mm. you know, not bad for a local election. Yeah. And they won enough to win it. And and after that, I said, OK, well, I tried and yeah. I failed. And that is not what you know, good Lord wants for me. Something else will turn up, I'm sure. Yeah. And I, as I say, with the refugees, and I find myself extremely busy. Yes. And I can probably guess the answer to this based on something you said earlier about Labour and Keir Starmer. But do you think the Conservatives will win the next general election? I do, actually. Um Boris is the great, I mean, he's been called like a grease piglet. <laughs> he is the great survivor 
And he is, even now, he's ramping it up um, a bit. You can see the fault lines being drawn, I think, for the next election. Mm. Um, one being Brexit still. You know, if the other side win, if Keir Starmer and North London win, they will reverse Brexit. They will apply mm. to rejoin the European Union. And I think they might. If you mm. listen to Alistair Campbell, who was Blair's advisor, they would do it in like a shot. Yeah. And so the more Alistair talks like that, the more I retweet him. <laughs> <laughs> and the more I said, that's going to be one of the issues. Um, secondly, uh, immigration. We had, mm. despite lockdown and so on, we had 600,000 new people arrive last year, yeah. uh, not from the EU so much as from um, the Indian subcontinent. And they've come because we need them. Mm. I don't think they've come for free health care um, benefits. But nonetheless, as I said earlier, um, they, they help me. They don't challenge me in my work and my job. Mm. And I think uh, immigration is going to continue uh, to be uh, an issue. And um, the red-blue wall seats in the north of England, getting the money to them and um, upgrading facilities and so on. Where I live, for example, there's over $100 million being spent on the rail services mm. in the Glossop area going out through to Hope Valley. There's uh, new bypasses being built. There's a new hospital being built in the middle of Buxton, which has been talked about for donkey's years, never actually happened. We actually see cranes, I don't mean the birds, on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the opportunities are tremendous. The Northeast is going to be one of the most successful areas for uh, renewable energy mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah. And those seats are going to be Tory for decades to come. Mm -hmm. So, yes, and we may lose a few down south to Lib Dems. Mm -hmm. But in the most recent elections... Labour part in England, Labour Party won, I think, about four seats. Mm. So I don't think Labour's going to make much progress in England. It doesn't look like they're going to make much progress in Scotland. There isn't much progress for them to make in Wales, and they mm. don't have any seats in Northern Ireland. Mind you, neither do I. <laughs> neither do we. So it, it could be this is politics, fascinating stuff. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, where can we keep up to date with you everywhere? Um, you can follow me on Twitter. It's Edwina underscore Curry. C-U-R-R-I-E They haven't given me a blue flag I have no idea why I've got about <laughs> 24,000 followers I think Yeah um, I can't, I can't be bothered with bureaucracy. If they don't want to give me a blue flag, fine. You can usually figure out it's me. Mm -hmm. And I have a website, um, edwinacurry.co.uk. Uh, uh, and on LinkedIn, if you are interested in LinkedIn, if you've got business people. Yeah, um, yeah I do all sorts of things. Yeah. Well, just as we go, is there a particular song that we can play for you? If you've got it, the Beatles' Penny Lane ah. is lovely. Now, why Penny Lane? Because that's where I grew up. There really was a barber. Uh, there really was a, a nurse. She wasn't selling poppies on a tray. She was selling Alexander roses for the nursing profession. Um, Paul McCartney lived in one place. John Lennon lived another. And I lived up the road. And um, we all went to the, well, three of us went to the Liverpool Institute. I went to the girls' school. They went to the boys' school. Yeah. And I used to go to the cavern when school thought I was going to my dad's for a sandwich. And Dad thought I was staying in school. <laughs> I was in the cavern. Yeah. Just like the husbands and wives in Westminster. <laughs> we'll stick that on for you. And many thanks for joining us on the show. It's been great to have you here. In my pleasure. Thank you very, very much. And uh, toodaloo. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Throbbing Post of Sound, the Toby Gribbon Show.